This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. We hear a lot about genetic modification and how it's being used to improve agriculture. But who decides whether modified crops can be grown? Do new gene editing techniques like CRISPR count as GM? And what happens to these regulations when the UK leaves the EU? The problem is that the European Union has a zero-tolerance policy for unapproved crops. So even if one seed ends up getting mixed up in a silo of, of other seed, even if all of that is approved, then the whole shipment gets sent back. Plus, our gene of the month comes with a tail behind it. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for January 2017 with me, Dr Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. September, I went along to a discussion organised by the Royal Society of Biology at the British Science Festival in Swansea. It was called Can Gene Editing Save the World? We've covered some of the potential applications of this exciting new technology, commonly known as CRISPR, in previous podcasts. But this time around, the researchers at the event were focusing on the legal and ethical implications of gene editing, as well as the practical applications. Rather than diving straight into the implications of the technology, not to mention what happens when the UK leaves the regulatory framework of the European Union, I started by taking a step back, speaking to Professor Hugh Jones from Aberystwyth University to find out who decides whether farmers can grow genetically modified crops in the first place. If a farmer wanted to cultivate a herbicide-tolerant crop in Europe, he could only choose something that has been approved by the European Union, and at the moment there aren't any, so there, there is no choice. The only one type of food crop, feed crop actually, that can be cultivated legally in Europe is, is a, uh, an insect-resistant maize, and that's uh, cultivated in certain areas of, of Spain and Portugal for uh, feed uses. So Europe hasn't authorised, apart from one, that, that one, Monate 10 it's called, and that was authorised before the current regulatory systems have been put into place. So since probably 2001, there haven't been any new authorisations for, for cultivation. That seems quite stringent to me, given that there are other countries in the world that are growing genetically modified crops and seem to be OK with it. Is it too strict here in Europe? There is a consensus that we have probably the or one of the most rigorous and, and risk-averse risk assessment systems, regulatory systems anyway, in, in the world. So we're at the top end of the, of the spectrum of, of how much information we need to carry out a risk assessment, but also even when the risk assessment's done and EFSA that carries out the risk assessment writes uh, an opinion, it's called, uh, that's stating that, that this crop is the same as a non-conventional uh, counterpart. The politics of Europe then comes into play because it's the politicians that authorise. EFSA merely carries out an um, analysis of the risk and then passes that on to the, the politicians and it's the politicians that authorise and at the moment they, they haven't authorised any new cultivation uh, applications. It looks like, for now, actual GMOs, so things that have had 
genes inserted in them using the old transgenic technology are a bit of a non-starter, in Europe at least. But now we have these new technologies, genome editing, that seem to be much more precise. What is the regulatory framework around that? What's the even the thinking so far? Well, currently, we don't know whether the European Union considers these as GMOs or not. And, and, and unfortunately, it has to be that zero or one, that, that black and white uh, choice, because there is no opportunity to put them into a third category. Now, they've been discussing a range of new biotechnologies and looking at the, the law of, of, of GMOs and trying to work out whether various types of new biotechnologies are captured within the, the law or, or fall outside. This process has been going on for the last two or three years, but we, we haven't yet got a final opinion on, on how the European Commission will see gene editing or other tools like that. Um, but at the same time, in other areas of the world, so Argentina has just come out with a, a nice um, regulatory um, framework that puts simple genome editing so genome editing that just causes small single nucleotide polymorphisms, the kind of things you could find in nature if you looked hard enough, they've put that outside their GMO laws. The three examples that the USA has considered have deemed those three genome edited examples as not requiring regulation. So they are putting them outside. So there is there is evidence from the rest of the world that, that other continents and other competent authorities in those countries are deeming simple genome editing as a non-GMO. Europe, we don't yet know. But the, I mean, the problem is that if Europe puts them into the GMO category, then they'll have to comply with the same regulatory um, rigour, which, again, some, some commentators say is really sort of some of the highest in the world. And I think that will be disproportionate. The risks are just not, not there to require such a, a tough risk assessment for examples of small gene edits that we can find in nature anyway. It feels like these genome editing technologies have come on us so fast and it's only a couple of years since CRISPR was discovered and we've had other genome editing techniques have been around for a couple of years longer than that. And for all its wonderful things and its flaws as well, the European Union and the legislative process is not the fastest in the world. Is it that our technology is just speeding ahead, ahead of the legislative process? How do we square this kind of legal circle here? Because it feels there's all this incredible technology coming along, great ideas, things that could be really beneficial, and a huge dinosaur of legal stuff behind it. Yeah, I, th I think we've got a two-phase process of change here. What we've got in the long run is a recognition that we can no longer regulate uh, using the method of making a change in a, in a plant genome as the thing that puts it into a GMO or a non-GMO camp. So, you know, using this technology or that technology is what we're talking about now, uh, whereas what we really should be focusing on is the, is the change we've made in the crop. So if it's, if it's, let's say, you know, just take an example, herbicide tolerance, what you, 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 know, you mentioned earlier. If, if herbicide tolerance has a risk, and you know there are um, environmental issues with herbicide tolerance, then that's the characteristic that needs the risk assessment, regardless of how it's made. If you make a herbicide tolerance crop through a non-GMO uh, route, then at the moment it's not regulated at all. Whereas if you make it through a GMO route, it, it, it undergoes 
heavy regulation. And and what I'm thinking is in the in the long run we need to step out from the the idea of trying to keep um, keep the regulation in in check with new technologies of how you do it because they will always develop there will always be changes every few years rather take us take a step back and redefine um, a regulatory system that focuses on the final product is the product new and if it is if it's if it's a new type of food if it's a new type of agricultural uh, uh, if, if it allows different agriculture to be used like like herpes tolerance does then that's the characteristic that needs the risk assessment now as you say the regulation is a dinosaur it's going to take a long time for that to happen so in the meantime we need to have some um, interim steps uh, to to tie this over until we we can we can make those bigger changes and I think those have to be perhaps uh, uh, the the starting of a of a of an intermediate risk assessment category where you haven't got the risks of conventional GMOs but you also would like some sort of regulatory oversight but it's proportionate to the risks like in simple genome editing. I have to ask the Brexit question. Given that Brexit at least seems to be on the table for the UK to leave the European Union, how does that affect our legal frameworks about our agriculture here in this country? Well, currently the EU law surrounding biotechnology is um, transposed, is the technical word, into our law. So we are obliged to follow the European law until... um, uh, we leave the European Union, and, and you know the day that we leave, uh, it, those laws will be untransposed, and we are then uh, we ha- we then have the we ha- we then have the the freedom to redefine what biotechnology is and how it's going to be regulated. So we have an opportunity uh, to relook at biotechnology and to and to. Uh, rewrite you know the rule book in that sense but we have also to be mindful that even if we were to have let's say we we had genome edited crops cultivated in the uk under our new uh, system then if any of that is exported into the european union then it anyway will have to comply with the european union's biotechnology laws we have to make sure that we 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 are aware of the fact that we are we are an island and if things stay on our island then it's fine but a lot of food that we cultivate is exported so we have to then consider the countries that we're we're exporting to and we would have to comply with their regulations and 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 so the european union has these very high um levels for uh, risk assessment even for imported crops not only for cultivated crops but but cups crops that are imported so we would still have to comply anyway with the european unions so it's not a it's not a panacea but it's it may be for some crops that we know are going to be grown only in the uk and consumed only in the uk then it it may be a way forward so british crops for british people may be okay british crops for anyone else where they don't have our framework 
could be tricky. Well, it's no different to how it would be today or how, you know, the USA. So the USA, if they're cultivating a, a GMO corn, they would have to make an application into Europe uh, and, and to get authorization, and then it can be it, it can be exported. And the problem is that European Union has a zero-tolerance policy for unapproved crops. So even if one seed of an unapproved variety ends up getting mixed up in a silo of, of other seed, even if all of that is approved, then if that one seed is detected, the whole shipment gets sent back. So there's a lot of concern that no unapproved varieties get mixed in with with the bulk of the the approved varieties because you know it's it's a massive risk and it's a massive financial burden to have a a shipment of of soy or whatever it is potatoes turned away from a, a port because of that accidental mixing. Professor Hugh Jones from Aberystwyth University As well as the legal restrictions around planting and selling genetically modified crops, there are also ethical and public considerations. Even if it's legal to grow GM or gene-edited food, will the public be prepared to buy it? And who should benefit from this technology? Those are the kind of questions being investigated by Dr Donald Bruce, director of Scottish consultancy firm Edin Ethics, which focuses on ethical issues in science and technology. We set up a working group to look at this issue in the early 1990s and in those days it was hardly in the media at all. And there was the first example available in the UK was a tomato paste which Zeneca produced, um, sold by, I think it was Sainsbury's and Safeways. And they took advice on how do we market this and the message they were told is label it. Give people a choice and tell them why you think it's important. And for them they saw it as a marketing plus that this is all the wonderful things they thought would be good. But in general, people had a choice. Monsanto in the States were developing um, genetically modified soya and maize, uh, which came over as imports, and they didn't do any labelling. They said it's been through the Food and Drug Administration, all the processes, and as do in the States. If we label it, that means there's something wrong. In UK, a label meant more, that it's something informational. And they did not make any any system for segregating or labelling. I mean, it's not just them. I mean, obviously, it's all the milling and all the other processes that occur. And the result was that people suddenly discovered they were eating GM food without knowing it. Uh, Maize and soya goes into all sorts of food processing. And then in February 1999, there was a concerted campaign by a number of um, NGOs, uh, development agencies, a couple of the, the major newspapers, got together and said, we want to freeze a moratorium on GM uh, applications. Um, We don't know enough about this. And they had a series of things in the press, one day after another after another, over five days, of scandals and one sort of another. At the end of that, everyone said, oh gosh, is it really that bad? I remember this. This was like Frankenfoods kind of stuff. And Greenpeace got one of their absolutely extraordinary pieces of soundbite of Frankenstein foods. you know, I mean, it was a joke, but it, 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 put the, it, it the stigma stuck. So the result was people said, well, hang on a moment, what's this stuff for? Well, the tomato paste was obvious. I mean, it was actually, um, it was slightly cheaper and it tasted better because they actually, they used less squashy tomatoes because they switched a gene off that made tomatoes squashy. So in fact, it was actually more energy efficient to produce it and it, and it cost less. And so I asked a supermarket manager in Edinburgh, you, do you sell this stuff? He said, oh yeah, the students buy it quite a lot because it's cheaper. So there was a tangible benefit. With the stuff Monsanto were producing, 
there's no tangible benefits at all. I mean, lots of things to do with the environment and farmers, but it didn't affect the average consumer. And there were these concerns about risk. Gosh, is this going to harm my child if I eat this stuff? Do they know enough? Am I going to get this DNA in me and all these sort of things? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and so the the consequence of that was if there's no benefit to me, there could be a risk, uh, I can't have any choice over this matter, then in a sense it's a pretty obvious, we don't want this. Uh, was a sort of fairly natural reaction, which didn't happen in the States. In North America, they trusted their regulators a lot more. Um, and in the UK, we had only, unfortunately, just had the mad cow disease issue, where the government was saying it's safe to eat British beef, and then the CDD surveillance units in Edinburgh found actually there was a link. And so, well, you told us it was okay over British beef, and CJD, how do we know it's okay over GM? So regulators had very little trust at that point. So it was a very different context. You say that at the beginning in the US that they were okay with it, and now we're seeing a, a bit of a backlash, and particularly on social media, people being very worried about GMs and sort of fighting against them and arguing for compulsory labelling again when there was none. And now we're moving into a potentially new phase of genetic modification of crops, of agriculturally important organisms. How should we think about that from this sort of ethical point of view from the risks? Right, genome editing is making the claims that GMOs were making, people promoting GMOs were making 20 years ago. This is much more precise than the technologies we've had before. Well, GMOs, as we've had them, are more precise than selective breeding, where somebody once said, cross the best and hope for the best. Uh, so it was more precise than that, but it wasn't that precise. Here we have a technology that has a, a great deal more precision, and so I think the, the claim is a genuine one. And people talk about off-target events where you insert your gene or do the modification in more places than you intended to. Is, the, is that going to be a significant risk? Um, I think at this stage, people don't know enough to be really quite sure, but the indications are looking pretty good that that's a very small risk. But the question is, is it significant enough? But then there's off-target risks with GMO, with selective breeding, and with the kind of mutation techniques that people use already. Well, the Food Standards Agency in the UK said there is no particular intrinsic reason why GM food should be any more or less safe than conventionally grown food or organic food. I mean, as such, the technique doesn't make it more or less unsafe. So I think that the same would apply to genome editing. Um, you should not look at this as being something that intrinsically this is dangerous. But one of the problems is people tend to regard sort of GMO issues as, as if it was radioactive substances. I used to be in the nuclear industry. Like scary, scary, bad, bad, bad. Well, more the sense of something that is insidious and might get me, as it were, if I eat it. And it's a really different sort of concept to that. So... I think that there are a number of perception issues here, but I think for those for whom just tinkering with your genes is going to, is is an issue that will not change people's viewpoints. If what people are worried about is switching genes across species, then genome editing may address that question. But we're still going to have to regulate some of the more advanced forms of this, particularly for having multi- multiple uh, additions. Then it will be something like GMOs, but the precision, hopefully gives you a better chance of addressing some of the concerns of of risk. And finally, is there one thing or even one fact that would help people to think about this in a clearer way and maybe avoid the sort of the GMO panic that we've seen? 
I don't think there is any one one factor that would do that because the way people construct their own view of risk is a complex affair and you can't so there is no one sort of simple message to give because it depends how you see it and you've got to work with that so it's it's not something which is, has a simple answer but I think one very significant factor is if you made genome edited foods or other 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 um, products that people saw an actual benefit to then that has something substantial to weigh against whatever risk perception they've got. So that's a benefit for them directly, for people eating this stuff? I, yes, sir. it could be t towards a health issue. It might be eating, it might be something for a developing country. You might think you know, that there's a pest that's unique to Uganda or somewhere. And if you could do something with their local crop that they have, wouldn't that be valuable, etc. So it, it might be a whole range of things that people saw as a benefit or disease resistance in pigs, if people saw a benefit coming from it, then that's something tangible to weigh against whatever risks they would perceive. And I think it's really up to those promoting the technology to say, we will only really develop up front the things that are going to be a benefit, and not just take things that were just useful for seed companies, but nobody else. Donald Bruce from Edin Ethics. And now it's time for a quick visit to the world of genetics news. A new study from scientists at Oxford University, published in the journal Nature Communications, suggests that retroviruses, a family of viruses that includes HIV, are several hundred million years older than previously thought. According to lead researcher Dr. Aris Katsourakis, it was previously thought that these viruses, which can embed themselves in the genome and lie dormant, may have arisen only a hundred million years ago, making them young whippersnappers in evolutionary terms. Because viruses don't fossilise, scientists have to figure out their age by looking at the viral DNA across many different species that separated a long time ago. These can be thought of as genetic fossils rather than physical ones. By comparing the remnants of DNA of so-called foamy retroviruses across species as diverse as mammals, fish and amphibians, the scientists concluded that retroviruses are almost half a billion years old and evolved together in a kind of arms race with the evolution of the immune responses in their hosts. By understanding how animal and viral genomes have evolved hand in hand over millions of years, researchers can gain a deeper understanding of immune responses to these invaders, leading to more effective antiviral treatments in the future. And the reference for that paper is on the website, thenakedscientist.com slash podcasts slash naked genetics. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. Still to come, our gene of the month has a long tail behind it. But now it's time to look at another application of genetic engineering, something known as a gene drive, which can force particular genetic modifications through populations. I asked Dr Tony Nolan from Imperial College London to explain what it's all about. Well, a gene drive is a, is a genetic element that is able to bias its inheritance uh, with each generation. So whereas a normal gene, one copy of a gene in an organism with two chromosomes would have a 50% chance of being inherited, a gene drive will increase that to some level above 50%, in the best case to 100%, and therefore, with respect to a normal gene, 
it will double in frequency with every generation. So instead of, you know, half the family have it and then a quarter of the grandchildren have it, it's like everything in everything is likely to inherit this particular variation. Not immediately, but with each generation it would increase in frequency such to up to a point where it will it will most most organisms in the in the population will have it. And this sounds really useful, but what can you actually use it for? Well, there are, there are different um, potential uses of it, but one of them is to introduce with the gene drive some sort of cargo that affects the population in a way that's useful. So we work on mosquitoes. One way would be to introduce some cargo that interferes with the mosquito's ability to um, transmit disease such as malaria. Another way is to introduce uh, some genetic change that affects the mosquito's fertility so that as the uh, gene drive element spreads through the population, at the same time it's actually damaging that p- the potential of that population to reproduce and therefore you reduce the number of mosquitoes and therefore you reduce the overall potential to transmit disease. So you could basically use it to force a modification through a whole population or effectively, eventually, make a population extinct? In the case of mosquitoes, which is what we work on, yes, the idea is for localised suppression, and in some cases that could be uh, local eradication of the mosquito. This sounds, in some ways, a good idea. I hate mosquitoes, they bite me, they're awful, they spread disease. Are there risks to eradicating an entire population like that? Well, that's something that we're obviously uh, keenly aware of. Um, What I would say is with a gene drive, it's a species-specific tool. So it would be contained within that species and any attempt to modify on a population level needs a thorough uh, evaluation of the risks and benefits. And, uh, you know, you need to consider some of these technologies against more conventional approaches, such as insecticide spraying or general attempts to reduce mosquito numbers, which are non-specific. So actually, if you're spraying all the insects in an area, that's doing more harm than just trying to get rid of the mozzies? Right. With compared to a a gene drive that is species-specific, in that case, you're getting rid of all mosquitoes, you're getting rid of a a wide range of different insects, so you've got a much broader-acting ecological consequence. And um, let's go into a little bit more detail about how does the gene drive actually work? What's going on at the sort of nuts and bolts level? Okay, so, I mean, gene drives can take several forms, but the one that we're developing and the one that's making the most impact at the moment relies on a very specific nuclease. So a nuclease is a, is a DNA-cutting enzyme that will cut at a very precise sequence on one of the chromosomes of your organism, and it will cause a double-stranded break. So you'll have a broken chromosome, and in the way it's designed, that broken chromosome uses the copy of the nuclease as a template to repair So the nuclease gets copied across from one chromosome to another. And so instead of being just only on one chromosome, it's now present on both chromosomes and therefore is inherited among all offspring. And along with that, that would be a modification for sterility or for disease resistance? Right. Along with that, there will be some other effects. And and finally, I would personally like to see an end to all mosquitoes in the world. But would there be environmental consequences for getting rid of mozzies? You know, what about the things that eat them? Well, in the, in the specific case of malaria, malaria is transmitted only by a handful of uh, mosquitoes of a genus called Anopheles. And that's a handful of mosquitoes species amongst several thousand, three or four thousand species of mosquitoes. So this would be a very targeted approach. And uh, it would be removing specifically 
those mosquitoes capable of transmitting malaria. So there would still be plenty of mosquitoes around where it's successful. And furthermore, there, as far as we know, there are no dedicated specialist predators on this species of mosquito. But of course, you know, the technology is in very early stages, it's got a huge amount of potential, but it's going to be part of the risk assessment is to fully evaluate the ecological risks. And if there are any risks, they'll be taken into consideration before applying this technology. Tony Nolan from Imperial College London. And finally, it's time for our gene of the month. And this time, it's Dashund. First discovered in fruit flies in 1994, Dashund's main job is to work together with a gene called hedgehog, telling cells in the developing insect eye to become light-sensitive retinal cells rather than becoming cuticle cells, the insect equivalent of skin. But its name actually comes from another function, helping to define the correct pattern of segments in a fly's legs. Without Dashund, fruit flies have unusually short legs, just like those diminutive canines. The mammalian version of Dashund is also active in the eyes and limbs, but it's also switched on in the brain and some other structures. The human Dashund gene also seems to act as a tumour suppressor, stopping cells from growing out of control and forming cancers. And faults in the gene have been found in some types of human cancer, including lung, pancreas and liver tumours. That's all for now. I'll be back next month with all the latest news from the world of genetics. Until then, if you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the Naked Scientist Facebook page or by tweeting at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is available on iTunes and also online at thenakedscientist.com slash podcasts slash naked genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll be back next time for another peek inside your genes. Genetics.